0: I uh, got to be around some of the men I consider Some of my dearest friends Get to, I'm blessed to be able to get to spend some time With Brother Brandon, Brother Scott, and Brother Vincent Regularly with Pastor's Fellowship And, and we have, and Brother Harold Smith and others And I've uh, been pleased to be with the rest of the, these men And this church This morning I find myself in a <clears throat> interesting position when I get in meetings like this. And I find out that I am what I would call a middle-aged preacher, I'm 38 years old. I've been in ministry about 12 or 13, 14 years, but uh, I'm not old enough to be wise, and I'm not allowed to be grumpy yet either, right? Because if you got a little wisdom, you get away with a little grumpiness. That's right, <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm too old, and I've been doing it too long to get a, to to blame my youth for every knuckleheaded thing that I do. And I end up finding myself—I don't know about you—but I fight cynicism. In a world like we live in today, in a church culture that many of us end up in from time to time and difficulties we go through, it's easy to get cynical. And When I come to this meeting, I've been so encouraged and blessed and challenged and whooped on a little bit here and there, and, and it's good for me, and I, as I thought about what to share and preach today, I felt like I wanted to do the best that I knew how to do to be and encouragement today. I could have tried to be challenging or had some strong theological point or uh, tried to see if I could preach something that convicts your heart, but I I thought I would try to be encouraging. And I want to try to do that today from the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. One of my professors in school told me if you'll preach from the minor prophets, people will think you're a genius because they don't read them enough. And so... That's what I I thought I'd do today. Zephaniah in chapter three. Trying. Zephaniah is a book in the Old Testament that most of us don't spend a lot of time with. It's a it's a book, a prophetic book, that's almost wholly concerned with prophesying judgment. Zephaniah is getting after telling everyone that judgment is coming. The prophet begins the book pronouncing this almost universal judgment on the world. And he, he, he's progressing. But where we're going to be today in chapter 3 is going to be where the tables have turned and Zephaniah is going to turn and begin to really talk about some things uh, that are going to come about in the time of restoration. The restoration of God's people. We don't know anything about Zephaniah hardly except what he tells us. It's possible, some scholars would tell you, that he was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. Maybe, maybe not. But as we come to this place and we look at this just short piece of Scripture, I hope you'll be encouraged. Because through this passage, we're going to learn some great and wonderful truths about God some great and wonderful truths about God. I want to read just two verses this morning in Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. There the Bible says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God, in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy, he will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. Pray with me just a moment. Lord, help me this day, help me to preach truth and not my own opinion, and where that happens, Lord, I pray that it would fly away from the minds of those who hear, and that only your truth would cling to them. Lord, I just ask that we would be encouraged by knowing more about who you are, by how you love us and how you care for us. Lord, I pray that you'd help me today to to be faithful. I pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. This passage begins with a short phrase where it says, in that day. Any of us that have read the Bible, when we see that phrase, that day, most of the time we begin to think about the day of judgment, the day of uh, when it all comes together, when it all comes down, when, when God drops the final hammer, the day of the Lord, the day of God's restoration, and in the context of Zephaniah, it's likely that he was aiming at the day where the Jews were going to be fully restored from exile. But I think it's right in applying it to thinking about the idea of that day as we do many other times, the ultimate day of full restoration when Jesus turns everything right. But he says that in that day it's going to be said there in Jerusalem, fear thou not. Don't fear. Fear thou not. God is speaking. And as we think about the fact that God would not have us to fear, I think it was mentioned in the context of the storm yesterday, that when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, creation happened. When when, when Jesus spoke in the storm, the the storm was calmed. And so were the disciples. God says, fear thou not. He's telling them this, and I want to tell you today, I want to remind myself today, that when God speaks, whether it be through His Word, through His people, through His preachers, that we can have fear dispelled from our lives. The Word of the Lord is to the Christian to fear not. I'm going to tell you today that fear is not the natural response of the Christ followers. It should not be. It cannot be. I understand if you go out here late in the evening, you're staying right here at the church, and you walk around the bend, and you come face to face with a black bear, that you're going to get scared, and you're going to tear out as fast as you know how to get out, right? right, That's okay. That's a a God-given fear to help you survive. But to live in fear is wickedness, in fact. To live in fear is ungodliness. It's in fact sin. God says, fear not. He's not saying that every manifestation of fear is sinful, but He is saying that our fear should be tempered by faith. Your fear, my fear, it should always be tempered by faith. It's the message of the 23rd Psalm that in the, in, in the valley of the shadow of death, what, we fear nothing, no evil. We don't fear fear anything. And so God tells His people here, fear not. And then that's the picture of the attitude that He would have us to have, the disposition of our heart. But then He speaks really about the disposition of our actions. The attitude behind our actions. There in verse 16, He says, let not thine hands be slack. Don't let your hands be weak. Slack hands are idle hands. Slack hands are despondent hands. Y'all shaking hands with somebody that was so low down and whooped by the world and they give you one of these right here and you thought bad things about them, didn't you? I wish that guy would stiffen up his handshake. He's making me uncomfortable. Right? Right? What's going on here? And you think, is, is this just how this guy is? Or is there something wrong with him? What's going on? Slack hands that aren't going about the work, that aren't doing anything. Slack hands uh, really picture for us laziness, don't they? If my hands aren't about doing anything, that, then I'm being lazy and I'm most likely outside of the will of God. Hands tell us something about a person if i run across an old boy and i happen to catch a glimpse of his hands and he's got some grease ground into his hands i th- i think about well he's he's been working right he's, maybe he's a mechanic maybe maybe he's he's a, a a truck driver and had been doing something with his truck maybe he's been doing this maybe he works on tires maybe whatever it is in my church back back in ozark arkansas i have such a picture of this Two men that I that I love, one of them worked in the uh, worked in an office position for all of his life. You shake hands with him, he's got really nice, soft hands. Man, that's that's nice. Your hands, it's not a weak hand shake, but but you're like, man, he got he kind of got soft hands. I like that. And then I got this other guy who's all he's ever done is drive a truck, and he drives back and forth and uh, works down in the in the gas and oil business and. If you shake hands with Him and you pull your hand away too quick, and take the first layer of skin off your own hand. I'm not kidding, man. It's got the roughest hands I've ever seen on a human being. And you shake hands with Him and it tells us something about somebody. And God's saying, if your hands are slack, if your hands are weak, what it's telling us, what it's telling other people, what it's telling God, is that I'm fearful. I'm not focused on the right things. God tells us that Do not fear. Put our hands to work because He just knows we should be trusting in Him more. God's saying keep working. Don't be scared. Don't worry. I'm on the job. Why should we fear not? Why should we keep working? Because we have confidence in God. We have confidence in His truth. We have confidence in His character. And as we As God prefaces verse 17 with this statement of not being fearful and being about the work of the Lord, then we come to verse 17 and within the context of this verse, I think we learn some things about God that should make this command easier. Where we won't be fearful, where we will be about the work of the Lord. Why? Because we learn from verse 17 that God is a personal God. He's a personal God. That's what the text says, isn't it? It says, the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God. The self-existent One. Jehovah God. Yahweh God. The all-knowing One. The unchangeable One that cannot be moved by me, by you, or by anyone else from His eternal purpose. That God is the One who says, I'm thy God. I belong to Him. He belongs to me. He's our God. Is it not Jesus who taught us to pray? Our Father. Our Father. He's my Father. I can call Him my God, my Savior, my Redeemer, my Lord. I can say that and not be boastful. I can say that and not be not be trying to make it about me I can say that because God has through his son committed himself to his people he's thy God he is a personal God this is something that the other religions of the world don't understand the personal nature of the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ Islam doesn't get it all oh, they they're, they're they're trembling in, a, in, a, in fear of their God in a way that they don't even really understand. They don't have a relationship. We fear, we're to fear God, but we fear as we fear our Father who loves us. Just like my son who's here knows that I love him, but he also knows if he gets sideways, things will fall down on his head. He knows that. It's happened. Don't ask him how he got that cast. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to fear that my God's going to blow me off the map because He loves me. It, not that I deserve it, but I know that He loves me. He's my God. He's my Father. He's given Himself to me. He's given Himself to me so much that He moved upon my spirit by His Spirit to give myself to Him. I wouldn't have done that if He hadn't given Himself to me. I wouldn't have loved Him if He hadn't loved me first. He's my God. Because He's made it that way. He's a personal God. And just because y'all are crazy about alliteration, and I'm not, but here you go. He's also a God that has proximity in you. What's that mean? It means He's nearby. Right? What's it say? The Lord thy God... In the midst of thee, God is in our midst. Man, I think about that sometimes. That God is in our midst. And then I ask the question, well, how is that possible? Well, God is in our midst through His Word. He has given us His Word, and as we read His Word, and the Spirit of God illuminates His Word, God testifies of Himself in His Word to His people and He's in our midst that way. God's also in our midst through the creation. Hey, this is a pretty part of the world right here. Smithville. I lived for seven years just up the road at Mina. It's a beautiful part of the the country. People come through here and I may not have a lot of good things to say about this part of the world, but they will say it's pretty to drive through, won't they? It's beautiful. And if you can walk through this and with any objectivity begin to look at the created world, your mind will have to be convinced otherwise other, for to, to take up a position other than someone who is powerful, someone who is glorious, someone who is full of majesty hath created this. Somebody had to, you have to convince yourself of that because the natural reaction to observing the glorious creation of God is that someone somewhere who is powerful has done all this. He's in our midst. The general revelation that He gives to us through His creation. Oh, but we know the most wonderful way that God has been in our midst and that's through His Son. The Word that was made flesh. He came and tabernacled with us, dwelt among His people. He came here with a purpose. We know that. But He came and He was in our midst. Now, physical way a physical way a real way this isn't this isn't symbolic this isn't uh, theoretical he came and was physically in the midst of his people and i know you may say well i wasn't alive in the first century i didn't see jesus with my eyes i didn't i didn't experience any of that he wasn't in my midst well let me tell you that through the holy spirit of god that indwells us At the moment of salvation, God is in our midst. The Spirit of God comes in, testifies to us, leads us, guides us. And God is in the midst of His people. Hey, look, it's one thing to be nearby the Lord. It's another thing for the Lord to be in you. It doesn't get any more in your midst than that. He's in us. Spurgeon said, and this may quote may have been used, we're to Spurgeon around parts like this, he said this, he said, there's such an abundant consolation in the fact of the presence of God with us that if we can only feel the power of it at this moment, we should enter into rest and our heaven would begin below. If you or I could even get an inkling of the, of the reality of just how much God is in our midst virgin, the prince of preachers says, heaven would take off from right here. You would would be so cranked up. You'd be so empowered. You'd be so strengthened. The Word of God would go out in such power. The Gospel would would move with such speed that heaven would begin below. As our dear brother Randall Cronister was mentioning the other day and speaking about getting a glimpse of the heavenly throne room if we could just recognize that that God is the one that's in our midst, it's the one, the, the the Lord Jesus is the one that's praying for us in the next room, as it were, praying for us right by our side, that if we could really walk in any level of recognition of that, that things would be vastly different for God's people. Just a, just a bit, just a touch, just an a little bit of understanding. He's not only a God that is personal or a God that has proximity in you. How about this? He's a God that has power toward you. Toward you. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will say, God that has power toward you. He is mighty. God has great power. All of us would be willing to say that. I'd be willing to say that from dawn till dusk. God has great power. But it's not just that God has great power. It's that God wields that power on behalf of His people. That's a a different truth, isn't it? It's one thing to say God's powerful. It's one thing to say God's mighty. It's another thing to realize that the testimony of the Word of God is that He wields that power on behalf of His children. You remember Exodus 14 where Moses told the Israelites, the Lord shall fight for you, ye shall hold your peace. That's why we take comfort from verses like 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. He's mighty and he's exercising his mightiness, his power on the behalf of his children. That ought to encourage us. That ought to strengthen us. I'm not in this by myself. I don't have to figure this out all on my own. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to be the best at this and the best at that because I serve a God who's God over all things. And He is going to wield the power of His throne on behalf of His people. I already read it. But He's not only a God that has power towards you, He's a God that has a purpose for you. How about He said there, He will save he will save. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. Not universal salvation. It's not what he's talking about there. God can and will save who? His people. Those that do not fear. Those that he's in the midst of. That's who he's saving. God can and will save those people from what? From the guilt of sin. God will save us from the danger of ignorance. Do you know that? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He'll save us from the danger of ignorance. God will save you from temptation. Some people like to say things like this, like, you know, well, you know, it's not that... As long as you don't do it, it's okay. Right? I, I, I do a lot of counseling, and I have people say... Well, I think about this a lot, but as long as I don't do it, it's okay. And I say, look, the disposition of your mind can have you slap in the middle of sin. Jesus talks about murdering people in your heart. He can save us from that. We can, in fact, have the mind of Christ. That's what the Bible says. Have the mind of Christ. I can have that. I can be saved from temptation. Not that we'll be delivered ultimately in this life and we'll never have another tempting thought, but He might deliver me from the thing I've struggled with for years. And that's wonderful. I may have a different temptation pop up next week. But He can save me from that one too. And we know that He also will save us from death and hell. He also is a God that provides us peace. A God that provides us peace. He says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. Rejoice over you with joy. Rest in His love. The last piece of that phrase, if you look at the language of the Hebrew, it it, it might translate in in our terms something like this. He'll be silent in His love. Silent in His love? Well, what does that mean? It's a preacher. Didn't you just get talking about God speaking but God's joy over his people and their salvation you know he just does say he will save right his joy over their salvation is such a deep joy that he's silent and I say that sometimes I've said that before and people say what are you talking about well I used to live in Virginia years ago and I'd sit on the porch we lived out in the woods and we, had a, we did have a pretty good road in front of us and people would drive back and forth. I'd sit on the porch with my wife and drink coffee. And we'd sit out there and we'd talk about everything, church, we'd talk about our kids, we'd talk about whatever, and we'd sit out there, with much else to do out where we live, drink coffee. And you know, we'd talk a lot. But some days, we might sit out there, we might sit out there an hour, we might sit out there two hours and not say very much, if anything at all. And yet, It was a time of sweet fellowship with my wife. How's that possible? Well, I have an intimate relationship with my wife and sometimes just being in her presence and knowing that she's there and her knowing that I'm there and enjoying the same thing together is enough. The silence of intimate relationship. But the Lord's joy is so great that He's silent. Silent as if He'd never heard an accusation against His people. He, he's not responding. He, he, he's silent because He knows the truth. He knows the power of Himself. He knows the power of Christ and His sacrifice. He does not have to respond to the accusation of the evil one. All these things that I've mentioned are wonderful, but I want to end with this one because it's the one when I first studied this passage, when I first stumbled across it, that blew my mind, and I hadn't quite even got over it yet. It's wonderful to think of God having such a deep-seated joy at his children. That he will save them, that he is silent in his love, that all of these things, that he has power toward them. But what about this last part? That he will joy over thee with singing. What about that? He joys over you with singing. I was talking to Brother Steve about this. To my knowledge, this is the only reference we have in the Bible to God singing. Now, he did tell me we can, we can understand that Jesus was singing hymns with, with folks and all that, and he's right about that. But I want you to know that as it relates to God in His fullness, in the, God the Father in heaven, not God in His fullness, we know Christ was God in His fullness, but God the Father singing. I think this is it. God rejoices. He has joy over you with singing. I want you to imagine for a moment the most beautiful music you can wrap your brain around. Hey, we've heard some good music in the past few days around here. I want you to think about your favorite old hymn, your favorite old gospel song. When I was a young man, my preacher was a was a great preacher that I came up under, and he always, about two, three times a year, he'd get up and he'd sing that old Squire Parsons song, Beulah Land. And he would sing that song, and I loved that song, and he sang it at my grandmother's funeral, and he sang it at my granddaddy's funeral, and I can't hear it without just busting apart and crying. But he says he, he, he would sing that. And I want you to think about it. You may have a song like that that means something to you, that speaks of the Lord. I want you to imagine that somewhere up in heaven, that God the Father, and why not God the Son and God the Spirit, God in His fullness, the full Godhead comes together and they begin to sing a beautiful song of glory. A beautiful song of joy. The Holy Trinity of God in perfect harmony bringing forth a song. When you think about that, you can't hardly get your head around it. And I can't either, but think about it. And hear me, Christian, this is the realization. That song is being sung for you. Think about it. Why is He singing? Because He's in our midst. Because He's saved us. Because He loves us. Because He's resting in His love for His people. Because he's has joy over us with gladness. He's singing for you. I can't get a hold of that. I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. God didn't sing over His creation. He spoke. He said it was good. But He didn't sing. He didn't sing over the incarnation of His Son in a manger in Bethlehem. No, the angels rejoiced and and, and all of that, but we have no uh, picture of God singing at that occasion. No. Friend, it is here at the moment of redemption when the most powerful being in the universe opens up and begins to sing. Because it is here that he paid the hefty price to call the lost home. It's here. That he laid the iniquity of the world on his beloved son. And so it's here that he sings. It's here at the moment of salvation. It's here at the realization of his love. Do you think that God the Father sings this song with glory and joy over his creation with a tear in the corner of his eye? Because it was the shed blood of Jesus that made this song possible. Oh, friends. God has sung your song if you're here today and you're a Christian. But let me say before I close, maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. I don't know how you stumbled into this meeting on a Thursday morning, but I'm glad you're here. But I'm going to tell you, maybe God had not sung your song. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you've never repented of your sins and believed in the Gospel. God had not sung your song. Let me tell you something. He's tuning up in the back. He's ready to sing. The Gospel's been proclaimed in this place time and time again in the last few days. And if you'll look to Jesus, repent and believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. trusting Him as Lord and Master. Then you too will be one who has the song of God sung over you. Christian, when you leave from this place, be encouraged that you have a God that's singing over you. And when you're down and when you're low and you're ready to quit, preacher, let remember that God's singing. Thank you, brother. I like that thought. I think y'all can relate to that, can't you? Any you, know, you fellers ever get to acting a little goofy and you start singing to your wife? Just the two of you, no one's around. I do it in front of the kids sometimes. Man, they, they laugh and they...